Hey everybody, I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast number 17. This week I'll be talking about the Scott Derrickson film Sinister. And of course we're going to be talking about the death of Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert was my favorite film critic. And the reason that I loved his reviews was not because I necessarily cared about what he had to say about movies in terms of what I was going to see. Because by the time that I could actually read a Roger Ebert review for most uh, for a good portion of my life, I had already decided whether or not I wanted to see the movie. But the, the thing that I loved was that he had an amazing way of writing about life. And he used cinema as an excuse or as, an, as a portal to write about life and the human experience. And I think one of the coolest things that we can see that, that Roger Ebert left behind is, you know, after... He, you know, he was a well-known television personality. That's where most of his money came from. And, you know, after he had his jaw removed and could no longer speak, he made the decision to still get out there and to not retire and not, not hide from the public spotlight. And it was really hard to look at him those first couple of times. And then we got used to it. Or at least I did. I got used to seeing him in that way and realizing that no he's still a person who is still the same person who was able to deliver these amazing reviews and he continued to do it you would never know that he had had these th these health issues if you were to just read his reviews unless he you know talked about them specifically inside of the reviews so i i really applaud him for that that he he eschewed the sort of old school thinking that after a certain point you're supposed to stay off the stage you're not supposed to be photographed and a lot of old film stars actually that's sort of like an old um celebrity thing where it's like after a certain point uh they no longer want to be seen because it somehow negatively reflects on their career the fact that they get old like everybody else and i i like roger ebert for sort of saying fuck that he's going to get out there uh he's going to put his face out there and people are just going to get used to it so anyway um but the thing that i loved about his reviews again was that he was able to talk about life and the human experience he also though did not see his role as whether or not you should see a movie. He was very in tune with the idea that he had certain issues about films that other people might not, and that there were things that were not his cup of tea, but it might be for the audience, and he wanted to share that. Let me read this from his review of Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th um, is about the best Friday the 13th movie you could hope for. Its technical credits are excellent. It has a lot of scary and gruesome killings. Not a whole lot of acting is required. If that's what you want to find out, you can stop reading. So, you know, this is only a two-star review, but he's saying, hey, this is about as good of a film for this type of film as you could possibly have. Just not my cup of tea. But let me, you know, the, the review that stuck with me is his review for To Die For, the 1995 Nicole Kidman film directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Buck Henry, who most of you know from, is the writer of The Graduate. And he, Roger Ebert had this way of sort of inserting great personal anecdotes into his reviews. This is one of them that he uses to tie into the film. And then to discuss the character in the film, who's really unique. If you haven't seen this film, it's amazing. It's very funny and sharp. Once I knew a TV interviewer who got an interview with Mother Teresa and never stopped talking about it. We will call my friend Anne. After listening closely, I realized that Anne thought she had given Mother Teresa a big break. After all... Not everybody gets to appear on TV with N. To Die For is a movie about someone uncannily like N. I make that clear because some will consider it a satire when it mirrors a personality type not unfamiliar to those who labor in the media. Now, first of all, I just want to let you know that The Gardener, 
who was previously blowing leaves right underneath my window. I went out and I talked to him. I said, hey, I'm recording upstairs, and please tell me, are you going to be in this area anymore? And he said no. So I can only assume that he didn't understand what I was saying. My Spanish is terrible. Um, so please uh, bear with me. And maybe I'll start recording this on Sundays because whatever time I do this, I live right next to two different properties where there is constantly leaf blowing going on. Um, in any case, all right. So he writes about... Um, Roger Ebert has, talks about sort of this egocentric personality that is the center of To Die For, and here's what he says about the performance. Uh, the, this movie is about Suzanne, and Nicole Kidman's work here is inspired. Her clothes, her makeup, her hair, her speech, her manner, even the way she carries herself, as if aware of the eyes of millions, are all brought to a perfect pitch. Her Suzanne is so utterly absorbed in being herself that there is an eerie conviction, even in the comedy. She plays Suzanne as the kind of woman who pities us because we aren't her. I love that line because it so perfectly encapsulates what this character and performance is all about. And for those of you who don't know, Nicole Kidman was sort of viewed as Tom Cruise's actress wife before To Die For, where she came into her own as sort of another Meryl Streep level actress, like somebody who could not only carry movies, but, um, you know, was going to deliver performances above and beyond and be an Oscar contender pretty much for the rest of her life as she, she has become. So, um... In any case, I will talk real quickly about some of the Roger Ebert reviews I disagreed with because he had a really moral perspective um, that would occasionally come into play. I think we saw that with his one-star review for Kick-Ass where he spent the entire review talking about his moral objection to the fact that we have an 11-year-old girl who is a character running around killing people, getting in fights with adults with guns, and that, you know, she doesn't have superhero powers. This is played for reality, and he just couldn't get over that. He felt it was inappropriate, that it, um, and, and he just had this huge moral objection to that. Um, and he had, you know, he wrote that Big Daddy and Mindy never have a chat about, you know, how when you kill people, they are really dead. This movie regards human beings like video game targets, kill one and you score, they're dead, you win. When the kids of this age range, kids in this age range of this mo movie's home video audience are shooting one another in everyday America, that kind of thing stops being funny. So here he really couldn't divorce his sort of, his moral objections to watching a child being sort of abused in this way, which the film does touch on. There's a character who confronts Nicolas Cage and says, you know, you're taking away her childhood. Um, but, you know, I think that, um, again, we'll see, like, with his review of Very Bad Things, it came more back to Roger Ebert's sort of moral objection, um, where he writes of Very Bad Things, and Very Bad Things is a movie I saw two days in a row, which I've almost never done. I mean, I, I can't even... Think, like maybe Austin Powers I saw two days in a row. It's something that I've so rarely done. And the movie blew me away and was, you know, sort of mainly uh, a film fan favorite for its shock value. And that's what Roger Ebert didn't like. Uh, he says, Peter Berg's Very Bad Things isn't a bad movie, just a reprehensible one. It presents as comedy things that are not amusing. If you think this movie is funny, that tells me things about you that I don't want to know. What bothers me most after two viewings, so he saw it twice, God knows why, um, is its confidence that an audience would be entertained by its sad, sick vision tainted by racism. If this material had been presented as straight, as drama, the movie would have felt more honest and might have been more successful. Its cynicism is the most unattractive thing about it. The assumption that an audience has no moral limits and will laugh at cruelty simply to feel hip. I know moral detachment is a key element of the ironic pose, but there is a point once reached which provides a test of your underlying values. 
So clearly I failed that test. I loved this movie, or I loved this movie. I did see it three times in theaters. I don't know how I'd react to it again today. It came on the heels of something like Pulp Fiction, which had that sort of shock value um, and it's or the the Tarantino sort of depiction of violence and sort of took it one step beyond. And Very Bad Things is a very simple type of film. It's what I call a baby steps to hell movie, which is very much like a simple plan. I guess if you had to see one of the two movies, Rent a Simple Plan, it's directed by Sam Raimi and one of the the, the great greatest films I've ever seen. Very Bad Things takes a far more comedic view on it. But it's sort of the idea of if I, I just have to do this one next thing, like this crime has been committed, it's nobody's fault, but let, let, we have to cover it up because it seems like the most moral thing to do and we got to protect our own ass, so we just have to do this one thing. And then, well, we just have to do this other thing. And suddenly it spins incredibly out of control and you have characters doing things that are so morally reprehensible that they've completely lost sight of where they started. And, you know, again, Roger Ebert didn't like this film. I did. But I love that Roger Ebert sort of had a sense of what his own tastes were and that he really truly viewed his job as sharing with you what it is that um, that he had to say about the human condition. Let me read real quickly because I did disagree with, I, and, you know, with Very Bad Things and Kick-Ass, I don't disagree with what he said. I just happen to love those movies. The stuntman, though, he missed it. And I'm just talking about it because the stuntman, for those of you who don't know, is probably my favorite movie. It's certainly one of the most interesting films that's ever been made to me because it is a Hollywood film that deals in big themes, big explorations of ideas. It deals with the idea of what is reality, what is cinema, how do these two things connect. Um, and it is a Hollywood movie upside down and inside out. And he writes that, in a two-star review, he writes, Richard Rush's The Stuntman is like one of those delicate sets of Chinese boxes, each one with another box inside, growing smaller and smaller until there is nothing left at all. I don't mean that as criticism. The film is intended to be seen that way, a cinematic puzzle in which there are no answers, and the only question is that old standby, what is reality? So here, Roger Ebert completely missed the point of The Stuntman. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it is a film about a, an escaped convict who happens upon a film set where a stuntman has just been killed and the director's terrified he's going to be lose his location and be kicked out of town or even prosecuted. So he says to the fugitive, hey, if you pretend to be the stuntman, fill in for him for a couple days, we'll wrap the movie, and you can come back to L.A. and disappear into the land of a thousand swimming pools with the rest of the crew. The, the fugitive agrees and then slowly begins to think that the director is trying to capture his death on film. So the, the thing that Roger Ebert missed here is that The Stuntman is about the emergence from paranoia. It came on the heels of a period in film where we saw movies like The Conversation and The Parallax View that had an incredibly bleak view of the world and distrust of authority, which is the result of a time period that started off with the assassination of Kennedy and led all the way into Watergate, where the structures of the world that were seen as once as things that protected us and that had our best interest at heart uh, now became items uh, or uh, identified as elements to distrust um, and corrupt. So, you know, again, I just, uh, I wanted to point out, I never got to talk to Roger Ebert. I would love to have discussed that with him because, again, to me, he sort of missed the point that the stuntman is about 
engaging in that paranoia that movies like The Parallax View and The Conversation trade in and sort of go down that go down that uh, sort of tunnel until there's no more light for these characters. And The Stuntman's about emerging from it. it that's what sort of turned Hollywood on its head. I, I would suggest in a lot of ways The Stuntman is what completely transformed Hollywood cinema and brought it back to what it is because it was able to look at all of these issues and deal with them in the guise of a film that also provided the audience with all of the elements that you need in order to appreciate a mass market film with uh, mass appeal, the, the love story, the comedy, the action, the, the thrills, the adventure, all that stuff jam-packed into this exploration of what is reality, what is cinema, and how to emerge from, from the paranoia that had cast a pall over America and over cinema for the better part of a decade. I did tweet, or I was trying to tweet to Roger Ebert in the last week uh, before his death. And the thing that I wanted to ask him about was, you know, because I had noticed that on his website, he started using other critics. And I, but what I didn't, you know, so like there'd be two or three Roger Ebert reviews per week, and then there'd be two or three or four others. Um, by, some written by Richard Roper, who was sort of the follow-up to Gene Siskel on his TV show. Some written, I think, by Jim Emerson, who writes for his site. And the thing that I wanted to ask Roger Ebert was, did he, at his sort of advanced stage, and I couldn't figure out a nice way to put it or a way to put it into 140 characters, but I was really interested if he had sort of given up on certain types of movies. And I think the answer to that, though, is that he hadn't, because there was no rhyme or reason to the movies that Ebert seemed to be reviewing and then he would the movies that he would leave to other critics. Because the, the point of my question was, I was wondering, you know, if he hates certain type of movies or if he knows that he's not going to like certain type of movies, for example, like G.I. Joe 2. You know, G.I. Joe 2 is, he called sequels a filmed deal. Meaning that, like, this is, everybody knows what money they're making, and we have to put something on film in order to sell to an audience to create this product. That, that's a Roger Ebert line. So, to me, I, I was really interested in if he had started avoiding things like sequels to movies that he couldn't stand. Um... And I don't think that he did. If you look at his reviews, he, yes, he would be sure to capture, you know, the last review of his is the new Terrence Malick movie, but um, he also reviewed garbage. And he did go to see Friday the 13th, even though he probably knew that it's not the kind of movie that he likes. So, you know, again, I, I wanted to tweet to him about that, but that's what I hate about Twitter. There's no way to ask a really in-depth question or, or something that has a little bit of insight, and there's no way to get any sort of insight into the response. It's, unless it's a yes or no, um, Twitter is relatively useless. Okay, um, so a reminder, always read film reviews. You know, this is something I've talked about. I, I know that I say that you have to read a couple hundred scripts. Um, you should be reading studio-level screenplays, preferably that you haven't seen the film for, but you should always be reading reviews after you see a film. It is the most important step, I think, of, of educating yourself. And this is sort of the, the bullshit I think about. A lot of film classes, and not, not that I'm saying that they shouldn't exist like this, because there's no other way, but to me, the seeing of the film is just the, it's the absorption of the raw data. You know, you're only going to learn so much um, from 
from getting uh, from observing a movie from seeing it for the first time you're only going to get so much from seeing a movie the second time you know it's sort of like the a friend of mine i once saw a friend of mine was reading crime and punishment and i was like why are you reading that now i took a dostoevsky class in college so i'm quite familiar with the book and i was like why are you reading that and he goes well you know there were some things in here that a friend was talking about and i wanted to sort of learn about it uh, and, and sort of explore these themes. And, you know, all I could think was, you are in the wrong place. If you want to learn about the themes in Crime and Punishment, get a fucking Cliff Notes book. Like, you should be reading the analysis of it, because the book itself is not going to entertain you as a, you know, non-literary person in 2007 or eight, whenever this happened. Um, you know, the to me, it was, if you want to really learn from this book and learn about it, you can read it, but you're, knowing this person, I was like, you're not going to absorb this stuff. I couldn't. You know, this is, even most students can't absorb this stuff. That's why you read the cliff notes, and you get all of it broken down for you, so you can learn what's in there because the text itself is no longer the most important element it's sort of the the what's going on behind it that you need to learn in the case that that's your goal with this piece of material and that's how i feel about movies where you know in a film class they show a movie and it's like the first time you've ever seen it and then you talk about it but then you talk about it that's the learning part the, the other stuff is just getting under your belt. And that's why when I talked, you know, one of the most common things I hear from writers is I've seen 2,000 movies. I don't need to read a book on, on screenwriting. I know what I'm doing. And those people's scripts almost always suck um, because they haven't done the, the research. They haven't, they haven't learned anything. Like, to me, I went into film school probably having seen about 1,500 films in my life, maybe close to 2,000. It didn't, that stuff was just the raw data that then film school sort of taught me how to look at it in, in different ways or how to look at, at, at film and break them down because I got a degree in critical studies. So in any case, um, uh, let me move on. I, I think I've talked about that enough. I'm gonna actually have to bring up here if you can bear with me for a second because remember I'm recording this live. Um, let's see. The, I want to read to you this review that I that I came across for the movie Sinister, and you know Sinister got sixty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and um, the, some of the critics really didn't like it. Now, the thing that worked, well, I'll get into why I liked it. I think that the film works perfectly, actually. And I'm at sort of the point in my own exploration of horror. And for those of you who have listened, you might realize that I've been talking about horror a lot. I think um, it's that it's one of the easiest genres to break down. It's, it's, and, and I happen to sort of be in tune with it these days. So it's not that I have some obsession with horror movies. In fact, I actually don't like them. I'm, I've, it's funny, I knew a screenwriter who, when I recommended the movie Hostel to him, he said, I don't do horror movies. I don't watch them. I, I just don't agree with the idea of them. They don't make me feel good. They, and I don't need to make myself purposely feel bad. And this is somebody who I guess has more than enough anxiety that he did not need to add to that by throwing horror films into the mix. And that's totally fair. Totally fair. Um, but, um, you know, in, in, in this case with Sinister, it happened to have worked perfectly. And it really shoved a lot of plot into and a lot of explanation in a way that to me was incredibly clear. So I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, let me 
get to this review that I, of course, I'm having trouble finding now that I'm looking back at. I'm trying to find this. Oh, here it is. Here we go. So this r terrible review is written at newsreview.com by Jim Lane, who maybe I'll, I'll clue into this. He gives it one star out of five. And he writes, a true crime writer moves into moves his family into a house where an entire family was murdered, except for one child who disappeared. In the attic, he finds a stash of home movies dating back to 1959 snuff films showing not only the murders in this house, but other families being slashed, torched, and drowned. Writer-director Scott Derrickson does absolutely nothing right. Okay, would you like to give us examples of that, Mr. Lane? Um, his characters, especially Hawks, are incredibly stupid, even by rock-bottom standards of don't go in that dark room trash like this. Well, what does that mean? You have to give examples. Now, again, this is sort of a capsule review. It's only a couple of sentences. It's not, uh, but this is what I don't like about contemporary film criticism, where you have any schmuck writing reviews Oh, I want to share something really fun about film critics that I forgot to mention about Roger Ebert. There, I interned at um, a place in Philadelphia that was responsible for setting up critic screenings. Their job is actually to promote lo films locally. Now, film studios, I believe, I, I don't know if they do this anymore or if they outsource to certain cities like they used to, but the way that it would work um, is that you know, film studios, of course, would buy the airtime for their for their commercials. But, you know, like sometimes they'll do like free advanced screenings in order to get word of mouth going. They would handle that. They would set up the critic screenings because you have to book a theater, invite the critic, make sure that it's at a time that the critic can make it, get them to certain movies, pick the critic who's going to see certain movies um, and buy the local newspaper ads and, you know, provide the information to... Uh, the movie guide as to what theaters are playing a film and at what time. Um, so, you know, in any case, uh, the, oh, and to give out novelties. I used to love, like, I have a Speed 2 Cruise Control towel, beach towel. It's a piece of shit. I mean, they're not giving out good beach towels, and it says Speed 2 Cruise Control on it. But, um, you know, they would do things like giveaways, like Men in Black, Ray-Ban glass, sunglasses for radio stations. They would set that shit up. So in any case... Um, they would set up the film critic reviews and I'll, oh, I'm going to share a fun story because why not? The first time I ever got to go to one of these screenings, it was a 10 a.m. screening and I was interning. It was only for a couple weeks, but I was interning there and I got to go to a screening of the movie Mrs. Brown, which is the movie that sort of exploded Judy Dench is one, one of the world's great actresses. Um, I, I guess she was always a stage actress, but here this was the movie that sort of brought her to Hollywood's attention. And the thing about... Um, this movie, I, I found it kind of boring, but I fell asleep. And I was sitting like in a, I was sitting like pretty close to the front of the theater. So, you know, with my head back, I just could not stay awake for a morning. I, I wasn't used to walking into a 10.30 a.m. screening. And I fell asleep in front of film critics. Luckily, the, the lady I was working for didn't give a shit. She was really nice about it. But I, <laughs> that was really embarrassing because, you know, you're with a company that's there representing a film, being hired to bring these critics there, and then, blam, uh, you fall asleep in the middle of this screening. Um, so in any case, uh, but, you know, here the writer Scott Derrickson does nothing right. Well, you got to tell us what that is. Now, he talks about something here. I think what he's alluding to with the Ethan Hawke character is that, Ethan Hawke's character, you know, he hears something in the attic in the middle of the night, so his answer is, let me go up to the attic and investigate. I guess that's what he's trying to say. But to say that they're incredibly stupid, even by rock-bottom standards of blah, blah, blah. 
his supernatural explanation stumbles into accidental self-parody. He can't seem to muster any suspense or decent scares. Um, Hawk's career bottoms out with a thud. It can only get better from here. That's the end of this review. Somebody paid this man to go to a screening and write this garbage. And, you know, this is what I don't like. I also don't like when people... Um, when critics sort of come up with novel ways to say that a film is a piece of shit, but that don't use the film. Like Roger Ebert at one point, I think was quoted as saying, and this is a great example that I'm using Ebert for. Um, he said something like, you know, I'd rather go to the dentist or this film is less entertaining than a trip to my accountant to do my taxes or something like that. Well, that doesn't tell us anything about the movie. Now, if it's a film about an accountant and he says, well, I'd rather be doing my taxes than see this, then you could say, well, there, there's sort of an acceptable level of, of parody or of criticism in there, and it's sort of clever. But this is the kind of thing that by having unqualified critics writing about films, you know, you end up with reviews like this. And God forbid somebody actually sees this one-star review and says, oh, I, I won't see Sinister, which, you know, I think is one of the... I'm watching it and thinking, wow, this didn't get an Oscar nomination for sound design? You know, because the sound work is so effective in it. Um, so, yeah, oh, but the other thing I want to talk about real quickly about film critics, and this is the fun part, two, thi oh, okay, two things. One, just because somebody's a critic in a major paper does not mean that they have any background in film criticism that they're even... It means that they got they lucked into a job. You know, it's a job like anything else. You get hired, you write about it. If people like the reviews, then or the editor likes the reviews because it's not like newspapers have that sort of instant feedback, which maybe they do today with the internet. They can see how many clicks certain critics get. But uh, you know, before it was just, are they doing their job? But here's the fun thing. This I can share with you, and this is sort of some more insight. This is why I started talking about my internship. Um, the fun thing is that there was a film critic who would walk out of films. He was famous, or at least they knew. This was sort of the deal that he had. If he was watching a shitty movie, he didn't have to watch the whole thing. Because when you go into a film screening of that, you get like an information packet, which has, um, it's called a press kit, where you get stills from the film in order to put in the paper. Uh, you get, you know, interviews with the cast and crew with some fun facts, you know, oh, the director did this because his dad was a butcher and whatever, you know, fun stuff like that. Um, and, you know, and the, and the cast and crew and who are the people and what are some of their other credits and so forth. This is, I guess, before the Internet where you had to sort of provide all that stuff to them. And this critic would walk out of movies and then he would. But the deal was he could walk out and they would not report him to his bosses or, you know, to the studios or anything. But he had to give the film like a two or two and a half star review. So that was the deal. That if he didn't like a movie, he didn't have to sit through it. And again, this guy's getting paid. It's a two hour commitment, you know. But again, this is before the age of, you know, before the age of smartphones where you could occupy yourself otherwise if you weren't enjoying a film. So he was allowed to do that as long as he gave the film a two or two and a half star review. And I just find that kind of interesting. You know, it, you really shouldn't pay too much attention. You have to look at what critics write. So, in any case, I, I've now shit on this review for Sinister. I'll talk real quickly. Just a reminder, I'm going to try to get my, my plugs into one minute. Let's go. 
Okay, uh, you can buy my book, Starter Screenplay, at Amazon. You can download it there. Buy it at thestarterscreenplay.com. You get free shipping in the United States, reduced price shipping to Canada and the world. I will personally autograph it for you. If you're interested in doing a film, a screenwriting uh, class with me via Google Hangout, email me. I'm going to collect a bunch of names. Probably going to have to do it sometime uh, mornings, Pacific time. Uh, on a weekend and if this is something you're interested in I'm gonna keep it to only a couple of people so if you're interested in doing that email me I'll put your name on a list when I get a little bit closer to figuring out how I'm gonna do it I will share that with you and you can sign up for it and I, I also have a class at the director's playhouse that will be starting over again and people drop in and out of the class it's cool like they'll come one week and then you know they're busy the next week that's cool um, so I, that's going to be starting up again soon. So email me. Whenever you're listening to this, email me. Let me you know, I'll let you know what I have going on. And I also have a mailing list on my website where you can get all sorts of good information because I email out only once a month and I email out good stuff. Like I email out a link to hundreds of studio scripts that, you know, were available online. Somebody sent it to me. I shared it. And I only do it once a month. And I'm generally not trying to sell stuff other than the stuff that you already hear me selling. Also... Hire me to read your script. I'm going to continue this another week. 299 bucks to read your script, to give you feedback, talk on the phone with you. We talk for 90 minutes to three hours. Uh, if it goes longer, if I'm that interested and in talk to you for more than three hours, let's do it. I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, there's no time limit on that. And for 99 bucks, concepts consultation, throw me a bunch of log lines, up to five pages of whatever you want, a couple, one or two treatments, of a one pager, you know, 15 one-liners, whatever it is, we will talk about it on the phone for an hour and get through so that you are focused on only the ideas that are worth your time so that you don't spend six months of your life writing something that somebody with sort of an executive mindset says, hey, what? I don't even understand that. Or why would you make that character a man when clearly this is a film that would only appeal to women? And let's look at either the type of guy that you have in a film like that or the type of female character you can write. That's the kind of stuff I talk about. Moving on to Sinister. So, I'm just going to talk about a couple things I really liked about this film. For those of you uh, who, I think I read a little bit about the plot, but I'll read a little more. This is taken from Wikipedia. The film opens with Super 8 footage depicting a family of four standing beneath a tree with hoods over their heads and nooses around their necks. An unseen figure saws through a limb acting as a counterweight, causing their deaths by hanging. So we see this branch coming down and these four bodies that are hung by nooses with bags over their heads going up. And we see their legs kicking. Months later, a washed-up true crime writer, Ellison Oswalt, moves into the murdered family's home with his wife, Tracy, and their two children. Ashley, a gifted artist who is allowed to paint on her walls, and Trevor, who begins re-experiencing bizarre night terrors upon moving into the home. Only Ellison is aware that the house they're moving into was the crime scene. Ellison use, intends to use the murders as the basis of his new book and hopes his research will turn up the fate of the family's fifth member, a little girl named Stephanie, who disappeared following the murders. Now, here is the catalyst. Ellison finds a box in the attic that contains a projector and several reels of standard 8mm footage that are each labeled as if innocent home movies. Watching the films, Ellison discovers they are snuff movies, each one depicting families being murdered in various ways, having their throats slit in bed in a film called Sleepy Time, being burnt to death in a car, barbecue, being drowned in their pool, pool party, being run over by the lawnmower, lawn work, and the hanging in the opening movie called Family Hanging Out. Uh, consulting a local deputy, Ellison discovers the murders depicted in the films took place at different times, beginning in the 1960s and in different cities around the country. He also learns that the families were all drugged before being killed and that a child from each family went missing following every murder. 
The deputy refers Ellison to a local professor, Jonas, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, whose expertise is the occult and demonic phenomena. Uh, to decipher the symbol in the films. Jonas tells Ellison that the symbols are that of a pagan Sumerian deity named Bagul, who would kill entire families so he could take their children into his realm and consume their souls. All right. So I loved this movie, and what I loved about it was the level of complication of the story. This is a mystery film. Yes, it's a horror movie, but it's a detective mystery because you have a guy who's a true crime writer, um, moving into a house and finding this box of films that depict murders that going back all the way to the 1960s. And he, of course, becomes d obsessed with this um, and obsessed with finding out what happened. And there is a supernatural element, which is so rarely dealt with in a way that I find to be effective, uh, scary, or something that makes sense. And the, the reason, you know, I'll, I'll talk about sort of the four things that, or five things that this film does that I really admired. I'm not going to get into a full breakdown of it, but the, the first thing that I loved about this film, constant conflict. If you watch this film, every scene, these, these writers, uh, Scott Derrickson, who directed the film, wrote and directed The uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose, um, there's constant argument. There's constant conflict. You know, like it starts off there with this film, and then we see this family unpacking a truck in front of their new house, and he goes inside and has an argument with his daughter about helping her, her mom unpack, and she goes, I don't want to unpack. That's conflict right there. And then he has a thing where he tells her, hey, you can only paint on the walls in your room. Um, which later leads to conflict because she ends up painting elsewhere. And that actually runs through the entire film, the girl's painting and what she is painting. Um, so, you know, right after he has the argument with the daughter, he goes outside and the sheriff is there waiting for him with a couple of deputies. Sheriff played by Fred Thompson, the former senator and law and order actor. Uh, and the, the we get all of Ethan Hawke's backstory out there, that he was a true crime writer who was coming to town in order to solve this unexplained murder that has happened in this house. And, you know, the the backstory is that he was once a hotshot. His first film or his first book was sort of a, a book along the lines of In True Blood that, you know, catapulted him into notoriety and solved a murder. But his follow-up was a huge disaster where he... I believe, I, th I think what they said was that he his investigation resulted in the release of a murderer or it went really wrong, something happened, and it was a huge stain on his reputation, a huge failure, and he's coming off of that. And this is sort of his his attempt at redemption in this story. But we have the, the sheriff standing there saying, you know, we don't appreciate your type in this town, and we'd appreciate, you know, and, and Ethan Hawke goes, what do you want me to do? And the sheriff says, well, you could put your boxes back on the truck and get the hell out of town. Um, so, you know, we, we are setting up a couple of things here. We're setting up the sheriff doesn't want him there, and we're also setting up the second thing that I really liked about this movie, there are wonderful red herrings meaning that there's a couple things that could be occurring in the film. And one of them is, you know, these killings went back to the 1960s. So we have two characters, actually, who could be the boogeyman in this film. We have, uh, we have, and by the way, I won't give spoilers because it, it turns out to be more complicated than that. Um, but Fred Thompson, you know, as soon as I saw Fred Thompson in the beginning of this film, I was like, oh, shit, you know, this is a small role. And that means that Fred Thompson's probably the killer. 
And by the way, this speaks to what Roger Ebert calls the law of economy of characters. I didn't talk about the Roger Ebert laws. You should look about Roger Ebert's uh, movie rules or movie laws. And one of them is called the law of economy of characters, which basically states that if there's a famous face in a movie, especially a detective story, and you can't figure out what they're doing there in terms of the plot, then they're your killer. So I remember watching the movie Twilight, and uh, was that movie called Twilight? I oh wow, um, not the not the Twilight films, but uh, the film with with Robert, uh, not Robert, Paul Newman, and you know we have Paul Newman and Susan Sarandon, and there's another big actor in there, and then all of a sudden James Garner pops up out of nowhere. And I'm like, uh, and this is like in the first act of the film, and I'm like, oh boy, James Garner is the killer. Because what else would he be doing there? And that's sort of the, that's Roger Ebert's law in place. So here we, we establish sort of a, I mean, Roger, Fred Thompson is, if nothing else, completely recognizable. And we set him up here as this opposition, and he disappears for a lot of the film. So that, to me, said, uh-oh, like he's going to be connected. But we also introduced Vincent D'Onofrio, who's actually aged a little bit in terms of his appearance, which makes it possible in terms of a timeline that he also could have been guilty of these murders. Um, and of course the film goes somewhere else, but you know, even as Ethan Hawke packs up his family and says, we're getting the fuck out of here, which I loved. I love that sort of after things get too freaky, he says, we're leaving, we're leaving tonight. We're getting out of here. And he, they pack up the family really fast, you know, like in a rush and they get in the car and they leave the house. They leave town and on their way out of town, they're pulled over by a cop. And I'm like, oh, shit, like this is where, you know, Fred Thompson's going to reveal himself and I'm going to start hating this movie. It doesn't happen. There's also red herrings about, you know, the kids where we have a red herring with the son, where the son is having these night terrors and starting to do some really crazy shit at night. And I, I felt like that was leading us somewhere and it leads us somewhere to, into believing something is probably going to happen and there is a reversal on it. I won't get into it. But this film does a nice job with that. Um, the other thing I want to talk about real quickly is secrets. The big secret in this film, you know, uh, is that Harlan did not tell his wife that they've moved into a house where the killings took place. He just doesn't tell her that she knows what he's working on. She doesn't know that they, she has moved his family into this house and they already are on the brink. And I like that, that. You know, I've said this, that you have to give, give your character a romance, even if they're already married. Well, this marriage is on the brink, and she says to him, even before she finds out about this, she's like, you know, if you're not successful with this, I'm probably going to pack up and leave. It's a little bit too on the nose the way it plays, because it almost sounds like she's saying if you're not successful with your book. But as we find out a little bit later, he has a, a tendency when writing books uh, to start drinking, to become obsessed, to ignore the family... And, you know, she's now moving the family out of their, you know, home and into this new smaller home. Um, so, you know, the threat to me felt a little bit unnecessary or a little bit ridiculous early on. But then we see that she probably was not referring to if you're not successful, I'm leaving you. But if you continue to turn into a monster writing this book, I'm, I'm not going to be able to keep my kids around you anymore. But the secret is huge. You always want to give your characters secrets from each other. I mean, that's what most romantic comedies are based around. And keeping a secret is one of the big things that, you know, makes drama interesting. And then you get your reveal. And of course, where does, where does it get revealed? All is lost. It gets revealed at all is lost at 78 minutes into the movie. Um, all of a sudden, bam, it explodes into this argument where he, she, she finds out 
that the murders happened in this house and they have this huge blow up argument and there's even a joke i like the back and forth between him and his wife because it's always very heated but um <laughs> you know he says no nobody got murdered in the house the murders took place in the yard and you know we have that sort of funny moment um so we have the the secret which i liked and we also have the dynamic opening. And th this dynamic opening I really like because remember in my book I talk about this and I use Basic Instinct. If you go to my website, I have a really big breakdown of the XXX opening. Um, I, I think you have to sell your movie in the opening pages. And this one does it in the creepiest fucking way. And it's succinct. It's so succinct because it's just an image. It's, it's a Super 8 image of of a family, uh, you know, with nooses, bagged heads, nooses standing below a tree branch, and then a counter, I don't even quite understand how it works, but they somebody saws off a tree branch on the other side, and all of a sudden that the tree branch that they're attached to starts rising off the ground in the family, and you see the legs kicking, and then you see the legs stop. So, you know, in my book, I talk about the fact that a dynamic opening does not have to introduce your hero does not have to do that. It has to establish your film. It has to establish the genre, the tone, the rating, and what makes your film special. And that imagery alone is fucking creepy. I bet you could find it online if you don't want to watch the movie. Just this, you know, 30 seconds of Super 8 footage. But I was on board. I was like, holy shit. Um, so yeah, th this is an example where we don't meet the character in the dynamic opening. We just have this little tiny snippet of film that provides the value of Sinister, the type of creepy movie we're going to be watching, where it's not as much about killings, because if you watch the movie, and this is what makes it different from a slasher movie or from a lot of other types of horror movies, there's no body count. There's no body count in this movie. I, I, I could be wrong, but no, I don't think I am. You know, shit gets progressively creepier, but nobody is dying, except in these films that Ethan Hawke keeps watching. So um, I, I admire the film for that. And I just realized that, that this is not a film where people are dying left and right. And there's this killer on the loose. The killer's on the loose, but it's up to Ethan Hawke to solve the mystery so that it doesn't affect his family. And, you know, that's, that's the, the, the last thing I want to talk about is sort of the complication of the mystery that I won't get into specifically because I want people to be able to listen to this and watch the movie. But, you know, whenever you have an, an interaction with the supernatural in films, it's an incredibly delicate balancing act because you tell us too little, it doesn't make sense. You tell us too much and you're overplotting it. Usually there's an incredibly complicated backstory. How do you get that information out there? And this film does it piece by piece. It breaks it down. There's seven or eight moments where, you know, Ethan Hawke realizes he's watching the film and he actually writes down. This is a cool thing for a detective to do. He writes down the questions. He writes down who shot these films. What happened to the miss missing kid? And then, you know, he writes down, I think he writes down, who is Mr. Boogie, who um, is Bagul, this, this uh, Sumerian creature or demon, um, who's mistakenly referred to as Mr. Boogie by the kids, who I guess are the survivors. There's a piece of art that he finds where there's all these families, and it shows all the families how they died, and then there's a kid's drawing of Mr. Boogie standing there next to these families as they're dying. Um, who are the supernatural creepy kids running around his house? You know, things start turning supernatural. There's a moment where Ethan Hawke has, freezes the image on his screen that he has found in one of these films of the bad guy. 
and he freezes it and he turns away and then the the image or the head on screen turns towards him when he turns away and the film plays with that a lot where there's these creepy looking kids running around the house at night um just out of his line of vision and we don't know how they connect to the film how they connect to the murders how they how all these things we have this we have this these films that keep appearing and by the way like at one point ethan hawk even um packs away all this stuff locks it in the closet and then he hears something and he comes back to the room and the projector's set up and it's playing these films again um so we we have this relationship with the supernatural we have who is mr boogie how did these families die what is the connection between them who are these creepy children running around what is this symbol that is on his wall um all these things and piece by piece it gives us this stuff um in a way that constantly teases us and gives us little tiny morsels so for example like the first time that he watches the film he's trying to like find, he sees an image in the back of the film and he's like is that a face you know he like circles it or he prints it out or he blows it up um and then you know later on he actually finds the full face he says okay there is this person but then who is this person what is this thing we, we it just happens piece by piece and that's what i really appreciated about it and when it all comes together at the end when he finds out how he connects to it um and how his family connects to it it makes sense because it makes it sort of shines light on everything else that has happened in the movie and all the plot that we've been given thus far um so it works really well uh in any case i'd be interested to know what your thoughts on sinister are feel free to email me that's all i have for you this week i'll be back next week with a new show take care